KVLA Talk 1580. Good morning and God bless. I'm Dominique DeFrima. The show is called First Things First. My first thing today and every day, giving thanks, giving praises, and asking for blessings from God Almighty, asking for the blessings of the ancestors and the elders and getting things going. I'm so happy to be back in Los Angeles. Told you, Kwamel. <laughs> so this is what we do. Our one, we do the left coast. What's going on locally? You know, this side of the country and uh, that, of course, can be a national and global conversation as well. Hour two, we go national, international and beyond. In the third hour, we do a deep dive with a person of interest. And uh, we are, it's sort of semi, somewhat an exception, but not really today. Uh, of course, as usual, you're invited into the conversation, 800-920-1580, What I say a little bit, a little bitty bit different, uh, we'll be having my partner in politics, Sherry Bell, in hour two to look at national uh, issues. And today... Um, on our local focus, we are going to look at the uh, one of our candidates for assembly. Well, you know him as my colleague. He hosts a show uh, here. He's one of the hosts of a show here Saturdays for Black Lives Matter. He's a longtime activist, a polit- political organizer and operative. He's a lead organizer for BLMLA and also the founder of the Fannie Lou Hamer Institute. But today he has his candidate hat on. Akili, good morning. Good morning, Dominique, and good morning to the KBLA family. It's, it's great to be here. It's great to have you on. So we a lot of times when you're on, you're on as an analyst and you're talking about other people's races and you've spent a lot of time, you know, you worked on campaigns, Barack Obama to Jesse Jackson. Yes. But and you've run before for office, yes. right? But uh-huh. now you've decided to throw your hat in the ring in earnest. Tell us why and what are you running for? Oh, great. Well, thank you so much. Well, I'm running for the California State Assembly, 57th District, which is South Central Los Angeles. Um, And I decided that I wanted to take my experience, my leadership, uh, and my commitment to fight for the things that I believe in, uh, that I'm already fighting for right now, um, and take that. I've been on the outside throwing rocks. Might as well be on the inside catching them and trying to turn them into the kind of public policy I believe in. And so I decided that uh, at this stage in my life, I wanted to uh, go on the inside and uh, and fight for what I believe in. I feel like I've been talking to so many people, lawmakers, who started lately, who started as outside agitators. Now they're in the system. Uh, people like Eonisis Hernandez, um, Hugo Soto Martinez, um, Lola Smallwood Cuevas. And that's a it's a, a tricky and specific role. What do you think that you can bring from your many years, as you put it, throwing stones <laughs> that can uh, be helpful and um, constructive inside uh, the system? Well, a couple of things. One, grounding myself uh, in the people's interest. Too often what I've observed is that politicians talk to other politicians, they talk to staff, and they talk to lobbyists. I want to bring my history of organizing uh, and my history of being grounded in the people's interest to Sacramento. you know, one of the things I think about, if an, if a, a lobbyist can have unfettered access to an elected official, the people in the district ought to have that unfettered uh, access. And so part of what I want to do is have is continue to have a series of community meetings. I want to have an open house where 
once a month. You can just come see me. You don't need to check with the staff. You don't need to, you know, Like check. an open-door policy yes. kind of thing. Uh, and talk to me about issues, interests, and concerns. Um, I want to ground myself in the interests, conditions, and concerns of the people of the 57th District. Uh, there's some things I want to I focus on. Uh, housing as a human right. I'm already working on that as the chair of the... Um, uh, Liberty Community Land Trust. We are already building affordable housing, but I want to. I want to see more investment in land trust. I want to see a a renters division within the housing department because right now landlords, corporate landlords in particular, have all of the legislation and all of the emphasis in their favor. So rather than having a housing department that deals with everything to do with housing, you'd have one department to deal with. Uh, owners of buildings and that kind of well, thing no, what, and what want I, to deal with renters? Well, what, one, there is a California State Department of Housing now. Right, right. What I would like to see added to that is a division for renters um, to protect renters' rights, to make sure that renters know that they have rights and what they are, and that would be on the side of the, of the renters. Right now, all the legislation, starting with Costa-Hawkins, which, it, which prevents uh, local government from instituting rent stabilization is all on the side of the landlords. There's, there are renters' rights, but they aren't supported. They aren't, uh, in, you, most of us aren't informed about it. And there's no provision, there's no place you can call to say, well, what about my rights? What about this? And so I'd like to see a division within the housing department that focuses on the rights of renters. And I, I think uh, some people would say, you know, why, why can we afford to lose you as an activist? Can uh-huh. we afford uh, the Ababa Akili, um, a- as you're widely known, or, you know, Akili, um, can we, can we afford to lose Akili from the front lines of these, you know, Black Lives Matter um, battles? Certainly, you've been very active in the fight to bring accountability to disgraced uh, racist former council member Kevin DeLeon, that kind of thing. Can we afford to lose you as an organizer of the Fannie Lou Hamer Institute? I'm sure folks are asking that question. Uh, you know, and that and that has come up. Um, I don't see it as a loss, though. I don't see uh, I don't see what I'm proposing to do. By well, you, I mean, there's some things that you can't do on the inside that you can only do on the outside. You're not going to be showing up as an assembly member uh, to city hall in, you know, police commission meetings uh, and, and, and city council meetings. Why not? Uh, and well, uh, I don't know. Is that conducting the state's business? Well, but more importantly, it's conducting the people's <laughs> business. Right. Uh, um, and if the people of the 57th Assembly District need a voice at city council, need a voice at uh, at the police commission, I don't know why I wouldn't I mean, there. if, you know, Donald I mean, Trump I mean, I can govern from inside jail, I guess, yeah. you know, why not a, a state assemblyman? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, you know, I've been on the front lines fighting for social justice and human rights for 52 years now. Um and I wanted to take, like I said, the, that being on the front line. I intend to continue to be on the front lines. And plus, I don't know anything else. And, you know, certainly being in Sacramento doesn't allow you to be, uh, you know, on every front line. Right. I mean, there's different protocols. There's a schedule to it. And we've all seen politicians, uh, people we know and love who run and then they morph into these political animals and they're not the same fighters that they were before they got elected. And that's why you have to build in and bake in the people. Because it is easy to become invi- in, in, um, 
in in involved so involved in that environment that you that you lose touch with the with the reason that you're there you know i i remember when tom hayden first got elected to the california state assembly many of us ask him you know why are you doing this man you know um and he wanted to take a lot of the work that that at the time that he been working with uh, with the Campaign for Economic Democracy. He wanted to take that to Sacramento. He did. Um, and I learned some valuable lessons from him. The first one is that <laughs> is that the institutions seek to marginalize and, um, you know, uh, kind of set you off to the side if, if your views are too radical. Um, I, don't, I don't think that that will happen now. Um, but one of the things that, like I said, I learned was if you bake in, if you build in the input participation of the people, then... Going to Sacramento is, you know, is an extension of what you are already doing, which is, in my case, what I want to do. I have, since 1989, fought for single-payer health care. That's a great issue. It's an important issue. Everybody says it's too expensive. Not everybody, but, you know. Well, the leadership in the yeah. Democratic Party of the state of California, including our governor, says no way. And yes. Without well, his signature at this point, there's no single payer. Well, and he did indicate in his first run that he supported it. He, he set up some kind of commission and that kind of thing. But uh, one of the, the things that I observed, because I worked for two speakers, is that there there are these interests in lobbyist interest in, uh, in California, special interest. Um, and they spend a lot of time, if I remember correctly, there are over 1,100 lobbyists in Sacramento. Most of, which, most of the time they spent keeping things from happening because they represent very narrow special interest. Um, and the insurance companies are, are among the biggest. I know that insurance companies don't provide health care. They provide the paper so that the people who provide health care can get paid. And they take 35 cents out of every dollar to do that. The, uh, if you're a veteran or you're on Medicare, they only take three cents out of a dollar to do that. And so why, if that system works for veterans and for seniors, why wouldn't it work for everybody else? Medicare for all. Yes, Medicare for all. You know, and and in California, there's something called CalCare that would, in fact, be that. Um, and I've worked on it. But I in this was in 1994. Uh, I was the uh, state coordinator for uh, Prop 186 that would have put that would have turned made California one of the first single payer systems in the country. I worked with keep people from Canada on how they did it province by province. Um, and over time, so by the mid-60s, late 60s, they had a single-payer system. Yeah. Um, so they went state by state. They Talking went, yeah, with yeah. Akili, um, you know, on Facebook, you're Greg Akili. Uh, in Black Lives Matter, you're Baba Akili. What will you be on the ballot? Just Greg Akili. I rarely use my first name, uh, in large part because as I was... Um, Getting involved, uh, and and uh, it was my first act of self determination was, of course, you got a name according to an attribute or quality you had or aspired to. So I got this name, uh, Atkeley, which means intelligence. Uh, and the people who knew me from the streets, who people who knew me when I was uh, in federal prison, people who knew me, like I ain't calling you that African, you know. And so I just dropped my first. I just stopped using my first name. Uh, and I remember when I went to work for the uh, for the assembly. 
as a special assistant for Antonio and then for Herb. Vieira Grossa yeah. and Wesson. And Wesson, yes. What, who were speakers at yes, that time, at time not, yeah. not mayors or and, city council presidents. And one of the first things I had to do was negotiate this, because I didn't want, I just wanted Akili on my card. Right. And so I had to negotiate this thing. They said, okay, well, you can do Akili, but you have to put your whole name and your email. And so that was, you know, um, but I rarely, <laughs> one of the few people that still calls me Greg, and I've worked on this for years with her, is Dolores Huerta. Um, and I just gave up after a while. Well, you know, having Dolores Huerta call your your name, whatever she calls yes, you, is an honor. I, I, so. just, I just gave up after a while. But she's one of the few people that still called me Greg. Because mm, when she met me, that's what she, you know, that was 45, 48 years ago. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about uh, your relationship with labor, uh, your relationship with movement. want to go a little deeper into some of the ideas that you are running on. We're talking with the candidate for the 57th Assembly District, who also happens to be my colleague here at KBLA Talk 1580. It's Akili, Greg Akili, Baba Akili uh, on KBLA Talk 1580. More of First Things First with Dominique DePrima when we come forward. Your ancestors' favorite radio station. Radio station. And your favorite morning show host. Let's get back to Dominique DePrima right now. Right now, now with now. my colleague, Akili. Um, and you'll find him on the ballot as Greg Akili yeah. for assembly. Uh, so you, you lay down some of the things that you want to run on. And one of them is universal health care. It's a heavy lift. Even though Democrats have a super majority in the state of California, some of these things like universal, uh, you know, pre-K, universal health care, the governor has balked at the expenditure and um, they almost seem like pipe dreams. You were using the example of Canada and going, you know, saying, let's go state by state and build a system. Yeah, that's the example that uh, that I was introduced to. In the uh, in the early '90s, uh, as I worked on single payer health care here in California, uh, and I work, I mean, I learned a lot of things from them. First, they went province by province. Second, um, they learned from each example. So, but that by the time they had a national health care plan, they had worked out a lot of the kinks. Uh, you can still get insurance in health in Canada. You can still get private uh, insurance, private insurance, and the rest. But it's not the primary source of healthcare delivery. Well, I mean, and the the thing that we don't talk enough about is the interconnectedness between that and the houseless crisis, right? Yes. Because a lot of folks that are on the streets lost their places because of health crises that they could not afford to pay for. Uh, or couldn't keep their jobs, right? You got that piece. And then you have people on the streets suffering from health crises in wheelchairs and carrying colostomy bags. Just a universal health care would eliminate that because those folks would be getting care. Well, and the other sad uh, example is the infant mortality and, and uh, mother uh, mortality among black women. Yeah. Uh, and a large contributor to that is the lack of access to health care. Um, you know, and so all of the indicators are that we need a universal, uh, accessible, culturally competent health care system. Uh, and we can have it. We live in the richest country in the world. We can have a just, fair, and equitable society. And we live in the richest state in the richest country in the world. But we make choices. 
we make choices. And we've, in the past, chose prisons. In the past, we've chose um, not to invest in, in people. And the, the society is, has suffered for it. California is the richest one of the richest states in the country, but it also has a large uh, poverty. And we're also among the poorest. You know, and but that's because we make choices. One of the things I grew up in a segregated South at the height of Jim Crow, where the law, the custom and the practice reinforced your second class status. Um, and I saw what that meant. And I remember um, asking my grandmother, they were repairing a wall. And I remember asking my grandmother because it was two pipes um, why we had to drink out of that water, water fountain because it was cracked and dirty. Her response to me was, come on here, boy, before you get us in trouble. I mean, so I'm six, seven years old, and I'm seeing that segregation didn't make no sense. I moved to California. I make some bad choices, get in some toxic relationships, and I wound up in federal prison. Um, I went in as a petty hoodlum. I came out as a Achille uh, because I was able to turn my life around uh, and make different choices and better choices. And I developed three basic beliefs. People make a difference that you go to them. It's not enough to have a good idea that you keep in this room. You have to go to people. That the essence of democracy is inclusion and participation. You can't claim to have a democratic society if you purposely, deliberately, methodically exclude people. And that we live in the richest country in the world. We can have a just, fair, and equitable society. And those three beliefs have guided my work for the past 52 years. So then you talk about housing as a human right. Yes. But what does that look like? I mean, it sounds like a great slogan. Everyone should have a place. But what does that look like when you've got housing shortages and, you know, the skyrocketing costs? Well, we have housing shortages and skyrocketing costs is because we don't choose to, one, stabilize rents, two, make sure that we can um, provide housing, the kind of housing we need for the people who need it. And then thirdly, we are, we are a punitive s- uh, society. We look at punishment before anything else. We, as I say, we are a hammer-based society. <laughs> and hammers looks for nails. Uh, and so if you don't have it in this society, it's your fault. You need to work harder, pray harder, or do something else harder. It's your fault. Because we, we fault the individuals if they don't have it, as opposed to looking at institutionally what is keeping people from having it. I see housing, health care as human rights. Um, I want to move from a, a privilege-based society to a human rights-based society. Now, all of these things I've been doing anyway, uh, and people have said, well, um, how can you, uh, you know, how are you going to be able to do this? Part of the, the advantage of having been on the front lines for as long as I have is you have, I was constantly being told what you can't do. Um, in 1977, 78, um, when I helped co-found the United Domestic Workers Union, prior to that, people said, well, you can't organize domestic workers. Uh, you know, they don't work in a, a place, in one central place. You know, they're women, mostly. Uh, you know, how are you going to do that? Well, Cesar Chavez actually gave us the idea to do it uh, because he had said, had he not been successful organizing farm workers, he would have organized domestic workers because those were the two groups of workers who were left out of the National Labor Relations Act. He gave us the idea, uh, gave us funding, and the person that trained him trained me, Fred Ross. Uh, But we were able to do it, and it exists today, the United Domestic Workers representing home care workers up and down this state. But if we'd have listened to people, we would have never done that. Almost everything that I've been involved in, 
people said you can't do that or you shouldn't do that or that's never going to happen. <laughs> and, 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 and while I'm proud of the work that I've done, I've also, you know, we haven't always been successful. We haven't always been, uh, I think, as, um, uh, as complete as we need to be. One of the things that you have raised to me and most of us is that we have these platitudes, we have these philosophies, we have these uh, positions. How do we translate them into practicalities that can be applied and implemented in people's lives? You have raised that question, and, it, and I've, ever since you've raised it, I constantly struggle with how can we make that real? Like I have this belief. <laughs> right. In, yeah. Um, I have this belief in, you know, I want to see housing as a human right. How, well, for me, that means investing in land trust. That means taking the money for land trust and using those land trusts. Because once once we invest in properties, it's permanently affordable. I would like to then see that, uh, and I'd like to see the state, for every dollar the feds invest in Section 8 housing, I'd like to see the state put a dime in so that we could build, and the land trust could build more affordable, permanently affordable housing, Section 8 housing. Permanently affordable because it's purchased with the intent of being affordable. affordable. Right. So there are measures put in place to keep uh, put a ceiling on any kind of. uh, And so I'd like to see the the Section 8 housing, which if you get on it now, you could be on there for a decade before you get a voucher. Uh, And that's in large part because you depend on um, uh, landlords to accept that. So those are just some of the things I'd like to see. Now, in in an environment where you got 80 other people or 79 other people, with ha- that have a different understanding and that most of them, many of them come through uh, and have been supported and contributed to by, uh, uh, you know, corporate interests, then the idea of moving uh, and investing in, in, in land trust is going to be a le- heavy lift. Hold that thought. It's news, traffic, and sports. Then more with 57th Assembly District candidate Akili on KVLA Doc 1580. We hope you have a safe and relaxing holiday season. Mask up and stay safe. At KBLA Talk 1580, we've got a lot to talk about. And your voice is critical to all the conversation. Happy holidays. holidays. Thanks for waking up with Dominique DePrima on KBLA Talk 1580. You've heard him on this show many times. Akili, known uh, in the movement as Baba Akili uh, for his work with Black Lives Matter. Uh, with as founder of the Fannie Lou Hamer Institute and as a longtime political operative and organizer. You know, you spent a lot of time directly in the labor space. Um, and, you know, labor unions pay, play a big role in who gets elected and who doesn't. You have this personal long-term working relationship with Dolores Huerta and many others in the movement, in the labor movement. How does that uh, factor into uh, assembly member Akili. Well, for me, because I have that history, relationship, and understanding, I'd like to see a workers' bill of rights. Uh, one of the things I'm concerned about is with the gig economy uh, emerging as fast as it is. Um, you know, we are, none of us are going to be workers. We're all going to be independent contractors. Uh, and then, what's going to happen for workers' comp? What's going to happen for uh, EDD? Uh, and how are we going to make sure that workers, you know, when they need it, they can get it? Uh, and so I want to I, I want to fight for a workers' bill of rights that establishes a what work what does work being a worker in this society mean? Uh, and what are you entitled to? And what are your rights? Um, you know. And I want to I also want to fight for uh, 
not only a living wage, but I'd like to tie the wages to the consumer price index. They do that in Maryland so that when the prices go up, the wages go up. Every two years um, in Maryland, you know, because it's their, their, living, their wages are tied to the consumer price index, then their wages go up. I'd like to see the same thing happen uh, in, in California, particularly given the fact that it's so expensive to live here. Yeah, absolutely, um, yes. So on the one hand, you have rents are too damn high and wages are too damn low. And so you have this problem. I mean, but to your point, uh, remember the bill um, uh, around gig workers here in California, this bill uh, measure... F- 22. Uh, no, right. not that one. Oh. The one that came before it that said that, uh, I think it's five... That said that um, oh yes that you know you can't you can only hire so many contractors and it sounded good on paper like oh let's give these people union jobs but for small businesses like myself right um, who my yay productions I'm not talking about KBLA I can't afford to put a, a camera person that I'm hiring for one project on full time um, all year round and put them on with benefits and such. I just hire them for a week or something or a few days to shoot a video. Uh, And I heard the same thing from photographers and uh, all these independent, you know, basically small businesses that use contractors of the unintended consequences of that very exact situation in California. So how do you balance that out? Well, I think you make provisions for, and you have cutoff points. Um, You know, if you employ more than 50 people, then... You know, then you have to participate in the general society. If you employ less than that, then you don't. Uh, I want to go back to health care. One of the, if there was universal affordable access to health care, that would be one of the things that most small employers don't have to, wouldn't have to worry about. Right. You know, and wouldn't have to try to build in. We're one of the few societies that see something as health care as a benefit, not a right. You know what I mean? Look, when you go to court. Uh, and the, and the judge, and you're standing before the judge, they don't ask you if you got insurance. They ask you, they say, if you don't have an attorney, we'll appoint one for you. Right. You know? That's true. So we can do the same thing with healthcare. And I think for small businesses, because small businesses hire a lot of people, they pay the wages of a lot of people, uh, and I think they are the contributing factor for a healthy economy, then we make provisions for them. We support them. The state picks up those costs uh, in ways that can allow the worker to still survive and not have to necessarily live from paycheck to paycheck, but also that allows the small business person or even the medium-sized business person to, uh, to be successful. Part of what I've observed is that we tend to slant everything toward the major employers and then be either dismissive or, or ignore uh, small employers. Uh, I think that there's a lot that can be done to accommodate, to support, uh, and help advance medium and small employers. Uh, Akili, are you, 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 you are, although you have these contacts in labor in this long history, you are also kind of an outsider in this I race. Um, you're not, uh, you know, the uh, you're not getting some of the big endorsements that we would expect from a progressive, right? Um, and some folks might consider that you know your your um, candidacy a long shot. Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, I'm not 
I am an outsider. And quite frankly, if I did have all of that, I'd question it for myself. It's like, oh, wait, wait a minute, brother. Uh, have you really? become so, yeah, have you become so institutionalized that you can do this now? No, I, I, I get that. I knew from the beginning that was going to be the case. In large part, because I got a history. Large, and, and people know that history. They also know that uh, I have... Uh, Certainly a, a set of independent views and values based upon my, my work and my beliefs. Um, and they know, they know what they're getting in me. I'm not running to build my resume. I'm not running so I can run for another office. I'm running to do the things that I believe in and that I'm already doing. And so, yes, uh, I found it interesting. But one of the things that has been rewarding for me is that I do have the kind of support of the people who are like me. I mean, one of the first persons I talked to about when I did when I decided to do this was Dolores, was Dolores Huerta. Uh, having Reverend Jim Lawson, having Danny ba uh, the, uh, Danny Glover. As so these in, folks are, have endorsed you? Has endorsed me and helped me a lot. Um, but these are the people that I've worked with in the past anyway uh, on the front lines. And so for me, that's as valuable uh, and meaningful because these are the people who like I said, I've been on the front lines for, you know, uh, and, and fought for the kind of things that I'm fighting for. Um, it is interesting, and I find it, uh, you know, uh, I think duplicitous, is that we, we can support people who have never done anything for and with us because they look, they're trending, they uh, um, have done some things, uh, but haven't done it long enough. I mean, one of the things that I told the, the people in the labor movement, I'll be your shop steward. You don't have to explain labor to me. I'm one of the few candidates that had worked in labor, founded a la co-founded a labor union. I understand what labor's like, how it works. I've had to take strike votes, and, it ain't, and that's not easy. I've had to file grievances. I've had to stand with workers against bosses uh, who are trying to either discriminate against them or, or be downright abusive. That is uh, a unique qualification in Sacramento. Uh, you know, and so, but, but that hasn't stopped me from supporting labor. Um, one of the things I told them, doesn't matter if you support me, I'm going to always support you. Mm. Interesting way of putting it. You, you know, you have experience in labor. You also have experience with the system of incarceration. Yes. And having been a system-involved person yourself. Uh, talk to me about how that colors your take on restorative justice. Oh, it, it, it's the centerpiece of my restorative justice understanding. Um, I know what it's like when you get out. Uh, you know, and... I mean, and I use Susan Burton as an example with what she's doing as a new of a new way of, new life, way of yeah. life, and with Dorsey, um, uh, with uh, all of us or none. A whole uh, experience, a whole movement has begun to develop around the formerly incarcerated uh, and fighting for to first of all to welcome us back provide the provisions that we need to, to get back in society and how we can become productive uh, residents and, and move our lives forward. And you know, so um, I certainly have a particular interest in that. Uh, I think I see restorative justice first as, you know, seeing people as, you know, as, as humans first. And all of us make mistakes. All of us need second. I know I've needed many second chances, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, to be third and fourth chances. Uh, but how do we not throw away people? 
we live in a throwaway society, in large part because we live in a, a society that's racist. Uh, and you can afford to throw away those people who are less than or you've been taught that are less than. And so I want to fight for restorative justice programs over prisons. I want to fight for you know, removing uh, um, police from traffic stops. I mean, there's absolutely no reason why a police officer should have pull you over because your tag, because you you don't have you know, your tags are out of date. You can you can put that information in a computer and they'll send you a ticket. But what has happened when you pull us over? Uh, we've been hurt, harm, and damaged, uh, and and in many cases killed. I want to remove that. Uh, I want to fight for as a part of the restorative justice program. An emphasis and understanding about what trauma is and what and why we need more, much more mental health. We're tinkering around the edges now. We're beginning to see that we need it, but we need, I think, some bold steps. And I think restorative justice programs can be those bold steps. Mm. Well, we're in a period of contraction um, from a budget standpoint. So yes. when we come forward, I want to get your take on, <clears throat> excuse me, how you do these big ideas and bold uh, policy agendas, progressive agendas around healthcare and restorative justice without the money in the bank. KBLA Talk 1580. Say the quiet part out loud. KBLA Talk 1580. A righteous range. And don't be afraid to say what you see. For KBLA Talk 1580. And Akili is my guest. He is running for assembly. What's the website? Um, it's Akili for the people. Is A- it letter four or F-O-R? Uh, no, it's the number four. Akili for the people, mm-hmm. uh, A-K-I-L-I, and that's um, that's where they can donate, right? Yes, you can make a contribution there. You can find out more about me. You can find out my vision. You can find out the people who support me, um, you know, and you can sign up to, to be a part of the movement for a better South Central, for a better Los Angeles, and a better California. I'm a movement person, and so I want to be a part of building a movement uh, that looks at how do we have a better South Central? How do we have a better Los Angeles? And how do we have a better California? I mean, I feel like you've been part of movements that that have been making change and impact for a long time. And now the plan is to go into politics. Well, Um, I've always been into politics. As as an elected official. Yeah, as an elected. That would be the first time you were an elected, right? Yes, yes. You made a point uh, about... We have budget constraints now. Yeah, we sure do. Um, unlike, I the mean, pan- the contraction big time, right? Yes, yes. But we make choices. What do we choose? Do we choose to invest in mental health? I mean, but we and the care first model that you're talking about has, you know, been voted in overwhelmingly by voters. Um, but if the money's not there, right? We, we don't see massive shifts despite the propaganda. We don't see a defunding or even a reprioritizing of police budgets. You know, we don't see a backing off of, you know, uh, you know, our emphasis on, you know, law enforcement and, 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 um, we don't see, I'm not so far have not seen a huge shift in money. Oh, let's get this pot of money for universal health care. Let's designate these dollars, you know, uh, to make housing a right. I was reading this article in the LA Times about how in Scotland, if you are unhoused, you automatically get a place. It might not be, you know, your favorite place, but it basically they have that policy. But it's extremely costly, right? Well, but once again, we make choices. Here's an example. When there was uh, uh, a rash of these so-called uh, snatch and grabs, and people saw them, they were frightened. You mean and, this week? <laughs> well, yeah. not this week, but wait a minute. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. 
the governor decided that you know, he's going to put over $300 million into law enforcement. Yeah. And so each city could get this, this money. Well, that's a choice. If you can choose to do that, and you think that that'll have some impact, you can choose to do other things. Um, one of the things that certainly I've spent a lifetime struggling against is the overemphasis on policing, the overemphasis on law enforcement, the overemphasis on incarceration. Um, and so that's a choice we make. He could have chose to, to spend $300 million in any number of other ways, but he chose to do this because, you know, that's, uh, that was trending at the time. And so he goes, you know, because he has larger ambition, he can say, well, I'm fighting crime. Well, yes, but what's the best way to fight crime that we've all that we've observed is to invest in people and communities. Uh, you know, certainly within BLM, we believe that we keep us safe. And all of the evidence, all of the data says that when you invest in communities and those communities are thriving, there's you know, the, the crime rates are lower uh, and they are not over policed. So uh, we make choices. I would be fighting to make other choices um, rather than extending and investing more in prisons. Uh, I would fight to make sure that we invest in mental health and trauma programs. Uh, I would be fighting to make sure that we invest in health care and housing. Now, all my organizing life, I've promised people two things. I never promise victory, only struggle. And that's, and, <laughs> you know, because you can't promise victory. Uh, but you can, you know, and, and yesterday I was with the California Faculty Association and, and, the, and the constant theme was when we fight, we win. Um, because they uh, are trying to get a contract. Right, some decent wages. Yes. Uh, and these are people who are providing the gateway, the next step for future generations at the college level. They shouldn't have to fight for nothing. You know what I mean? Because that should be a priority and we should figure out how to make what they do uh, in, you know, uh, uh, easier and better because of what they, of, of what they are producing. I mean, the, the fact that we got to fight for teachers' salaries um, in ways that, that you don't have to fight for law enforcement salaries like that. You know, and they get extra sets of rights. And so I am going to be that voice. I am going to be that person. I am going to be that organizer who is going to be uh, fighting for the things that I believe in. Doesn't mean that I'll necessarily be successful, but I certainly want to be uh, fighting for them. But more importantly, I want to make sure that we educate people in the district about the choices that we make or don't make. I want to educate people in the district about why having single-payer health care is a much more effective and efficient way to provide health care. I want to educate and, and, and work with people about how do we invest in uh, affordable housing so that we can get it. Um, and, I mean, I'm doing that now. I mean, one of the things... We, we've had in these listening sessions. I went to um, Skid Row as a part of the district. So I had a listening session with, with homeless people and people who, who provide programs for them uh, uh, or with them. And one of the things that I heard consistently from the providers, one is we know the resources is there. Make sure we can get them so we can provide the services. But the other thing I heard from people who are unhoused is that that they are unhoused not because of mental conditions, not because of addiction, not because of they ain't had nothing better to do. They are circumstances in their lives that caused them. They were living from paycheck to paycheck, that one of them paychecks didn't come through. Right, right, right. And they wound up having to make bad choices. Up against uh, the clock here, Keely. When we come forward, we'll get uh, the... Uh 
The one-minute, two-minute pitch about why folks should vote for you and what, what you want them to remember. And what, if we have time, your lessons uh, from working for two speakers and the land trust work will bring to the table should you be elected to the 57th Assembly District. That's next on KBLA Talk 1580. Here's to a holiday season full of peace, peace joy, and, joy happiness. and happiness. Happy Kwanzaa from all of us at KBLA Talk 1580. We're not for everybody, but we're for everybody. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Well, this is such an important race for KBLA and the delegation. Maybe uh, you and uh, the other candidates will have to come back uh, closer to the election. Those ballots go out, mailing ballots go out in February. Akili, what lessons from the land trust and, and working for two different assembly speakers, will um, how will they manifest and why should we vote for you? Well, the first lessons was that you have to seek to involve and keep involved the people uh, in ways that uh, you can get from them what they're thinking, what their beliefs, and what their, their interests are. So that was the first lesson. The second lesson for me is what, how the meaning, value, and impact of a land trust and how it can be a catalyst for, first, keeping people in their homes, secondly, providing affordable housing uh, in ways that, um, that we hadn't thought about before. You mentioned uh, um, what happens in Scotland and in Europe. They have social housing in, in, in Europe uh, where they build the, 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 the municipal municipalities build the housing. We have gotten away from that. Public housing is the worst thing we can do. And so, no, uh, I've, so I've learned that lesson. And then finally, I want to take the reason that I'm asking people to vote for me is so that I can take this experience, I can take this history, I can take my results uh, and apply them to what I believe to be the conditions and problems uh, in this district first in the in the city and in the state uh you know and one of the things we've been doing is listening to people you know i had a a, a listening tour in uh in in skid row we did a know your rights uh uh listening and one of the things that that i was shocked to find out is that you don't have no rights you have the right to remain silent that's the (laughs) that's the deal and i'm like oh god so the, the, the you know so I want to take my experience, I want to take my uh, results, and I want to take my commitment uh, to be a voice for and with the people of the 57th Assembly District. Your 60-second pitch, why we should vote for Akili. Because you're voting for somebody with experience, commitment, and a history of getting things done. Uh, And I want to continue to do that. I want to continue to fight for what I believe in. And I want to continue to involve uh, and engage the people of the district so that we can have a better South Central, a better Los Angeles, and a better California. AkiliForThePeople.com. It's the number four, A-K-I-L-I, number four, ThePeople.com. If you want to get more information, uh, write a check. Or uh, even volunteers? Are you signing up door knockers and that kind of thing? Absolutely. Well, Akili, it's a pleasure to talk with you, and um, good luck to you. Well, thank you so much. And one of the things I may have shared with you, I'm proud of a lot of accomplishments, the things that I've done, but I'm most proud of being your first guest on your first program when we first started with KBLA. Yeah, the first uh, first things first guest. You're in distinguished uh, company. My first street science guest was one uh, Paul Mooney. Yes. (laughs) Akili, it's great to see you. All right, and thank you so much. News, traffic, and sports, and then we're talking more on KBLA Talk 1580.